0: Father, we pray now as we turn our attention to your most holy word that you would strengthen us and nourish us by it, that you would embolden us in our faith in you, and that you would help us in our places of need, we pray. Amen. The year of you. Around the turn of the new year, a health club boldly advertised that the coming year was, in fact, the year of you. This is what they said. They said, New Year is right around the corner, and you're either going to own the year or the year is going to own you. It's 100% your choice. It's in your hands. That's the first thing. Simply by taking all of the responsibility and putting it on your shoulders, you become empowered. Next, You take that feeling of empowerment, of invincibility, the feeling that you can run through a wall, and you take action. You take action like you've never taken action before. You become prolific. You become consistent. You let no obstacle stand in your way, no matter what. No more pity parties. No more whining about anything. You are in control. You are in control. You. Man, that sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, I love the idea of personal responsibility and hard work that produces results. But control? I wish I could be in control. I know some of you feel the same way. I know that some of you are control freaks up in here today, that you wish that the circumstances of your life could be dictated by your desires or by your words or by your actions, but you know what it's like. You know that the tighter you seem to squeeze trying to gain control, the more that slips through your fingers. No matter how hard you try, when you pause to think about it, you realize that there aren't really that many things that we are in control of. If you don't believe me, just ask your five-year-old to go brush your teeth. <laughs> or send your kids off to college and realize how much control you really have over them then. Or plan a vacation that is contingent upon the weather. If I could control the weather, it would be a lot warmer outside today. If I could control the circumstances of life, my dear friend wouldn't be lying in a hospital bed this morning. If I could control our political system, the next election would reveal... Wouldn't you like to know? (laughs) The truth is that we have a very limited amount of control in this life. And that was illustrated again and again and again and perhaps never so clearly as it was in ancient Israel. In fact, when we look back to ancient Israel, some of you might remember how the book of Judges ends. It ends with a very specific description of the world. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And in those days, there was no king in Israel. Anarchy reigned. And anyone looking at God's people, Israel, would not recognize them as God's people. Individuals sought control, and as more and more individuals sought control, the more and more the anarchy began to reign. No king was there, no rule was established. No semblance of godliness among the masses, only... Periodic bursts through individuals. And from the outside looking in, if someone were to look at the nation of Israel, they would probably start to wonder if God himself was even in control. And then we read in 1 Samuel about a woman named Hannah. (laughs) Hannah wasn't in control of her circumstances either. She couldn't control the situation she was in. She was infertile. But what we see through Hannah, and what we see through the story of 1 Samuel, is a remarkable thing. We see a world that seems to be spinning out of control, and an individual life that seems to be spinning out of control, but yet we see a God who is indeed still very much in control. And so I want to ask you to open a Bible with me if you've yet to do so, to 1 Samuel chapter 1. Today, we're going to read 1 Samuel chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. And what we see is at the beginning of this story of the establishment of God's kingdom, it starts with a couple of very nondescript, humble people. And it leads to a much greater reality for us. And so, look with me as we read 1 Samuel, starting chapter 1, verse 1. This is what it says. It says, there was a certain man of Ramathiam, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth in Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Paniah. And Paniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year, from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of Hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were the priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peniah, his wife, and all of her, and all of her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And Eli answered, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went on her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and then they went back to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all of his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow, But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him up, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull and an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am a woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Let's pause for a moment. And we'll come back to the prayer in chapter 2 shortly. Elkanah was a quiet and God-fearing man from a nondescript background. He had two wives, Alkanah had Paniah and all of her children, and Elkanah had the wife named Hannah, who desperately wanted children but was seemingly unable to conceive. And the story of this whole expansion of the kingdom of Israel starts with these humble people from a nondescript place in the middle of very deep distress, the pain and struggling of her soul. Because Hannah's plight was not unfamiliar to many of us. She desperately wanted to have children, but she was unable. And it's one thing, that type of pain is one thing to read on a page. But when the words on the page are filled in with the experience of infertility and the types of anguish that people feel, you know how profound this can be. Perhaps this was even more so in the ancient world because of the different types of status for mothers and for barren women. But think about it. Try to imagine it with me. The longing of the heart. Week after week. Month after month. Year after year. Getting your hopes up, only to have them dashed again. The feeling of every little change in your body. And wondering, is this the change that is keeping me from conceiving? Or maybe on the other side, something's changing my body. Maybe it means that I have conceived. And if you've ever struggled with infertility, or if you have a wife that has struggled with infertility, or a sister, or a friend, or a relative, you understand that the inner turmoil of the ups and downs, and the year in and year out dynamic of this is incredibly difficult now how do you engage with a person who is struggling to conceive do you talk about it all the time do every time you see them do you ask how it's going do you joke about it do you make fun of the fact that they don't have children Or do you have your children continue to make fun of the fact that they don't have children? Of course not. It's a hard thing to talk about. The wrong word at the wrong moment could bring a woman to her knees in anguish and turmoil because of the emotions attached to this. And so you take great care in speaking to someone who's struggling with infertility. Certain words at certain times will only do. Unless, of course, you were trying to injure them. And then you'd bring it up all the time. And in the crassness of your words, you would cut very, very deep. And that's exactly the situation that Hannah finds herself in. She's married to a man that loves her dearly, but it was as was common in the ancient world, when a woman is infertile, a man would often take a second wife who could bear children, and the line would continue. And so, Elkanah has two wives. He has Hannah, and he has Paniah, and Paniah it says in verse 2, has children. Not only did she have children, but she's seemingly very, very fertile, as verse 4 says that He gives a portion to all of her sons and daughters. The injury is doubled now. And jealous for the affection of Elkanah, Peniah continues to give Hannah the words that will cut to the very deepest of her soul. Verse 6 says that she would provoke her grievously. To irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And now the pain that was doubled is the pain that was tripled. Hannah is living a nightmare, and there's no place to go, and there's seemingly nowhere to turn. I wonder what you do when you are at the end of your ability. When you cannot affect the change in your circumstance, when it becomes abundantly clear to you that you are not in control, though if you were in control, things would be very different. When you live with grief or pain or fear, what do you do? Where do you turn? Well, here we take a cue from Hannah, and we watch what she does. Look at it with me in verses 7 to 10. It describes how in the midst of her grief and anguish, she turns to the Lord. And we see in verses 7 to 10 the description of how every year they would go up to the house of the Lord and they would offer sacrifices, and every year that they would go, that Paniah would injure her all the more, year after year after year. And in the midst of this deep anguish, she turns to the Lord in prayer. And you get the sense, as it's described here in the text, that this is not just some sort of obligatory prayer that she's offering. It says, in verse 10, that she was deeply distressed, and she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Verse 15, she's speaking to Eli, the priest who insensitively levels this charge of her drunkenness, and she says, I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. I've been speaking out of great anxiety and vexation. Hannah was in a dark, dark place, and her prayers, you get the sense, were raw and sincere and deep. When she experienced her greatest hurt, she went to the only person that she knew could fix it. God. She poured out her soul and her heart and her emotions and her desires to him, She had no particular standing or merit. She was a small nobody woman from a small nobody town having a problem that all kinds of women had. But we learn something from her example. And it causes us to think, how do we handle similar situations? When we're in the dark hours, as we all are at one time or another, what do we do? Do we sulk in pity? Do we lash out in anger? Some of us get very short-tempered when we are distressed, don't we? Do we self-medicate? There's all kinds of ways to self-medicate, to distract yourself from the distress or the pain or the fear or the anguish. Do you eat more or do you drink more? or Maybe you have shopping therapy. Do you bury yourselves in your work? Do we sink into an online virtual world where we can control the outcomes rather than living in the real world where we can't? Where do we turn? What do we do when we're in our moment of distress? I wonder which one describes your default position. Hannah goes right to the top. And she does so, not only in her action through prayer, but there's a recognition that motivates this action. It's a perspective on life that Hannah has, that there is someone in charge of her circumstances. That God himself is in charge of the good and the bad. That her womb being closed by the Lord is indeed by the Lord. And he is the same God who has the ability and capability to open it again. And so we look at this short prayer that she prays in verse 11, and we see how this is expressed. She vowed a vow, and she said, Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, And I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. For Hannah to come in the midst of her distress and to address God as the Lord of hosts, a title that carries great significance and weight to it. It's for her to recognize that God is indeed in charge of everything. To say that he's the Lord of hosts is to say that he's the Lord over cosmic powers. That he's the sovereign over all things. The Lord of hosts is the great God of the universe with armies and armies of angels at his command. And for her to come to the omnipotent Lord of all things, and for her to trust that a lowly woman from the hill country can do that, is for her to trust that a lowly woman from the hill country matters. To him. Friends, that is the logic of faith. Some of us might say, if God is in control and sovereign, but he's allowed these terrible things in my life to happen, then I don't want anything to do with him. He's mean, or he's not loving, or he doesn't care. That's not faith. Others of us would say, if God is really and truly good and loving, but all of these things are happening to me that I don't like, that cause great turmoil and despair, then clearly he can't be in control. But that's not faith. The logic of faith that Hannah exhibits is to trust that God is both sovereign and good, to us, even in the midst of our distress. That's Hannah's perspective on life. She calls him the Lord of hosts, and then recognizing that through her pleading and that her circumstances are well within his control, and he gets to choose how it works its way out. She can't escape from God, and she can't escape from the terrible circumstances, and so there's nowhere else to turn but to faith in the one who is both in control and is good. I wonder if your outlook on life is like that. That's the logic of faith. It's not always easy. It's especially not easy in the dark and even darker hours. But the example of Hannah is to let those dark circumstances drive you even deeper into dependence on God. And there's a reason why. Because he cares. It's interesting that this book, this big grand story of God, starts out with the most simple truth God cares. He cares. He's sovereign and he's good. And so we see this logic of faith expressed a lot of ways in the Bible. We see it in Romans 8, 38, and 39. Some of you are very familiar with this passage. The Apostle Paul writes that, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or 1 Peter 5, 7. Peter writes, Cast all of your anxieties on him because... He cares for you. Or Isaiah 42, speaking of the Lord Jesus, we see it in Matthew 12. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And so throughout the Bible you see this dynamic where it seems like when our human ability comes to its end, End, where it ceases, right then God's direct action becomes apparent. God is working all the time underneath the scenes, around the scenes, in ways that we can't describe, but His action becomes very apparent to us when our human ability ceases. And dependence on Him is expressed in prayer. And He chooses to act out of that dependence. And so in this sense, prayerlessness is faithlessness in some ways. And prayerfulness is faithfulness as you trust Him. Mary Crowley once wrote that every evening i turn worries over to God. He's going to be up all night anyway. (laughs) Or Hudson Taylor, missionary to China gave this excellent advice about dealing with the dark hours of your life. He said, let's give up our work, our plans, ourselves, our lives, our loved ones, our influence, our all, right into God's hand. And then, when we have given all over to him, there will be nothing left for us to be troubled about. And so we see that God cares. That God cares and he provides for his people. It is so simple in its expression and yet when you are in the middle of it, it feels like the farthest possible thing from you. He cares. And he provides for his people. And Hannah is given a son. Now I don't think that we're meant to take away from this, that God always answers the prayers the way that we want to if we depend upon him in faith. In fact, we know that doesn't happen. We know that there have been plenty of people who have remained infertile even though they've prayed desperately. Nor do I think that we should necessarily make vows to God if we have no intention of keeping them as a sort of Quid pro quo of God answering our prayers. But what we're meant to see here in this very beginning of this grand story is that God cares. That's it. God cares and He provides for His people. He cares for Hannah and He cares for the people of Israel who are in the midst of their great chaos. And so, friends, ask Him. Ask Him. Plead with Him. God loves to hear the prayers of his people in need. And verse 27 gives us this great picture of the ask. You see that the word, the name Samuel, sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for to ask. And in fact, Hannah articulates as much in verse 20. She's called him Samuel because I have asked for him from the Lord. And then she comes, the baby's born, she has him for probably two or three or four years, before she dedicates him back, but she makes good on her vow. She has him trained in the temple under Eli. And as she is handing this child who she's been waiting for and now finally has and would be probably the hardest thing to give back to the Lord, she gives this incredible, incredible expression of her asking that we lose a little bit of the gloss in English. So let me give you a little Hebrew gloss for it. This is what she says. Look at verse 27. She says, for this child I prayed, and Yahweh gave me my asking, which I asked from him. And I have also given back what was asked to Yahweh. All the days he lives, he is the one that is asked for Yahweh. When the times are dark, ask God to help he cares and he provides for his people remember the setting the times are not just dark for Hannah they're also dark for the entire nation of Israel, everybody what was, was doing what was right in their own eyes, anarchy was reigning and through Hannah God will express his care to them, he raises up a leader A leader who will then raise up a king, who will then establish some sort of ongoing and even eternal kingdom down the road. And that leader's name is young Samuel. Hannah's vow is kept. Samuel becomes a Nazarite, and he's trained by the priest, Eli. And so the story concludes, or this first part of the story concludes, with a prayer. (coughs) With Hannah's prayer, the prayer of a barren woman made a mother, of a faithful nobody given blessings from the Lord, of hosts himself, and she reflects the nature and the character of God in providing for her as God delivers her from the darkness and so too promises to deliver his people from the darkness. So look with me at chapter two. We'll read the prayer just in three different parts. It can be easily divided into verses 1 to 3, Hannah's particular situation, verses 4 to 8, how God works more broadly in the world, in verses 9 and 10. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Take no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. Hannah's situation was dire. The woman who was so low now holds her head up high. There's this picture of her having a horn, a, a grand horn like an animal. And the pride of that animal is the horn. And so her horn is held high, she says. Only God can do that. Look at what he's done. He knows. And he cares. He's mighty. And he's good. And Hannah uses the word salvation salvation to talk about this situation and in some ways this is a type of micro salvation for Hannah it's taking her out of her place of darkness and giving her hope and a future and so she says nothing compares to God and from there she moves out from her situation and she looks more broadly at how God works in the world and she says in verse 4 that the bows of the mighty are broken but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to she and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. To make them sit with the princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Hannah makes clear that God's priorities and his power are not what the world would expect them to be, which means that the power structures of the world are not the accurate reflection. Of ultimate reality. Think about that for a minute. (laughs) That the power structures of the world are not the accurate reflection of ultimate reality. The world expects the rich and the powerful to have favor and blessing and lasting influence, but God honors the humble, not those who are arrogant. And his work is evident when we realize that we cannot accomplish victory of our own accord. God controls wealth. He controls resources. He gives standing to people. He closes wombs and he opens them. He sends some children off to war and not others. He blesses certain families during certain seasons and he allows difficulty during certain families during certain seasons. Human power and weakness look completely different when you believe in God and if you feel like a nobody like you don't matter like you have a great need but no supply then depend upon him and take heart in the words of verse 8 He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and to inherit a seat of honor. How could God do that? Well, he can do it because the pillars of the earth are his and on them he has set the entire world. So it makes sense that a God like that, with that level of power and influence and authority and control, it makes sense then that a God like that would ultimately have his victory and express his blessing to his people, no matter what their circumstances look like right now. And so Hannah concludes there in verse 9 and 10. Look at it with me. She prays, he will guard the feet of of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed one. The sovereign and powerful God of the universe rules as throughout history And as he does, it should be no surprise that for any who stand in his way, they will be destroyed. This prayer concludes with this grand finale, this grand recognition. The long view that God's people will be delivered, his enemies will be shattered, and all of the earth will be judged. And how... God delivers Hannah then when you take a step back and you look at the whole picture and you look at the whole prayer in one you see this incredible truth how God delivers Hannah becomes a foretaste of what his victory will be like when his kingdom comes in its fullness and so don't miss it don't miss it how God delivers you <laughs> When you are in your greatest moments of darkness, becomes a foretaste of his deliverance to you when his kingdom is established fully. When you are low or anxious or filled with distress or afraid and he lifts you up and he puts your feet on a rock and he fills your heart with joy and gladness and raises your head up high as a horn with glory. Whenever God does that for you, it's a sample of what is coming in its fullness someday in the future. Whenever you experience micro-salvation, like Hannah did, it's a down payment of the grand salvation that God has for your life. And so you fast forward over a thousand years. And you hear a prayer of a young woman praying a very similar type of prayer. A young woman who's with child... She prays this prayer of gratitude. A prayer that recognizes the magnificent works of an awesome, awesome God and how he takes people of lowly and humble estate and raises them up. A prayer that also recognizes the coming of a king. This prayer was prayed by Mary in Luke chapter 1. And Hannah's prayer is a foretaste to this prayer. And the down payment of Hannah's micro salvation is a down payment to a macro salvation for all of God's people, for anyone who would seek him. Because God cares. Because God cares and provides for his people. And so Jesus came offering salvation to anyone who would seek forgiveness through him, and establishing himself on the throne as the King of kings and the Lord of lords for all to see. All because God cares about you. What a generous and loving God. And what a great, great salvation and so take heart and trust him let's pray together Father we recognize that it is often very difficult for us to feel like you care when we are in the midst of the darkest hours increase our faith we pray that we may trust your goodness and trust your power increase our faith we pray that we may seek you and find you in those moments Draw near to those here, even today, who might be in the dark hour. Help them to ask. And we pray that you would be gracious and generous to them. And for the rest of us, God, we know that our dark hours will most certainly come. Prepare our hearts and our minds now that we too may seek you and find you in that moment. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for raising up a king. Thank you for saving us. In the name of that King Jesus, we pray. Amen.